Lord, we come to you now thankful for the great privilege of singing praises to you. Uh, Lord, celebrating the fact that you um, are risen and that, that we now have you as our Savior. But Lord, allow us now to settle into your word because, Lord, it's from your word and through your word that you want to shape our hearts. Lord, you want to convict us of sin. You want to draw us, Lord, to yourself. And so, Lord, I ask that what we know not, Lord, you would teach us. Lord, what we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, Lord, you would make us through the ministry of the word this morning. So that if we are here today and we truly don't know you as our Lord and Savior, that your gospel would, would take root and your Holy Spirit, would, Lord, would, would, uh, would bring about new life. And for those who know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, that we would rejoice in the encouragement and the confidence and the certainty and the joy of our life with you because of your resurrection. Uh, Lord, I ask now for special strength this morning and that you would be glorified in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, friends, it is that time of year when uh, Facebook posts, blog articles, books, and articles are written, um, PBS specials come on, basically trying to deal with the subject of the resurrection, and experts speak, and they pontificate, and want to really challenge uh, what the scriptures have to say about the resurrection. A Facebook post might say something like this. Now, all intelligent people everywhere know that Jesus did not rise again from the dead on the third day. I mean, it's just there. Or maybe there's a blog that, that gives some, I know, some apparent reasons why the resurrection can't be true. And of course, those television specials might want to capture your attention by saying, Join us to discover the real story behind the resurrection account of the gospel. And in it, it all typically begins with what they say is startling new revelations show that the truth surrounding the resurrection is different than what actually you find in the Bible. And they kind of have a plot to what they're doing. The church used to believe this. Yeah, but we don't believe that anymore. We're more sophisticated now. We're, we're, we're smarter than those simple folk. But don't worry, because you can still celebrate Easter. It's a wonderful day to celebrate. It actually isn't really celebrating Jesus coming back from the dead and rising from the tomb. No, it's really the celebration of, of the fact that in life we get shackled and we get entombed with, with what society puts on us. And we can be free from all of that and other such nonsense. And friends, it's that time of the year. That plot is always the same, isn't it? The church used to believe this. We're smarter than that now, so we don't believe it anymore. But we can still believe the Easter story. Just interpret it a little differently to suit your own ideas and agendas. Well, for anyone who's willingly, uh, willing to honestly study the resurrection, you will have to deal with a myriad of facts and evidence surrounding the resurrection and the birth of the church. 
You see, it is what Jesus repeatedly said to his disciples as he was anticipating going to Jerusalem. I'll just read one verse, but there's a number of them recorded in the Gospels. Mark chapter 10 and verses 33 through 34. This is the third in a series of three statements he makes to his disciples in Mark's Gospel. He says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. This is Jesus saying this. Repeatedly, he knew what he had come to do. And even one of his disciples, the leader of the disciples, Peter, rebuked him for making statements like that. Secondly, the apostles are summarized, the apostle Paul summarizes this eyewitness evidence of the resurrection of 1 Corinthians 15. We read it a little bit earlier, but let me read it again for you, beginning at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have yet fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. So Jesus, the apostles, and then the apostles are sent out by Jesus to be his Witnesses to testify, both Jews and Gentiles, that he, Jesus of Nazareth, is the long-awaited Messiah who died, who was buried, who rose again. And friends, so to deny that the resurrection is true is to reject the testimony and the evidence of Scripture. You can't claim one thing without acknowledging the other. So it's not just some small part of the Bible. We don't agree with that verse, but we agree with other things. No, the the whole essence of the Bible is Jesus. How do we know that? Because Jesus declared that to be true. Luke chapter 24, uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus walked them through the Old Testament, all these different places that were pointing to him as being the Messiah. You see, without the resurrection the true Christian church would not exist. Preaching would be empty. People would be left in their sins and estranged from God. All of us would be without hope. But friends, the resurrection is good news. It's good news because the Son of God conquered death. It's good news because our conversion is a move from death to life. That's good news, friends. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but but through Christ we have been made alive together with him. And he calls us to walk in the newness of this resurrection life. Now, the passage of Scripture we're looking at this morning is the very first recorded sermon that the Apostle Paul preached. Now, I don't typically preach other people's sermons. But you understand, this one is in the Bible. So I'm stealing his sermon. No, I'm not really stealing it. I'm just preaching a sermon. 
Not my sermon, his sermon, but it's my sermon. You get the point, right? And what we're going to look at today is the impact of this sermon. And what we find here is that the Apostle Paul is on his first missionary journey with Barnabas and John Mark. And they've just finished their ministry to Paphos. You can see up up on the screen the map or maybe in your handout. And, And that's on the island of Crete. And as they sail to the region of Pamphylia, to the city of Perga, John Mark returns to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas, they continue on to this city called Pisidian Antioch. Now, there's a lot of Antiochs we've encountered so far. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, um, you, you, you visit some, some state and, and there's always a Greenville in every state. Sometimes there's more than one. Why? Because it's named after someone or it's named after a thing. So Antioch was, was, na- it was a word or a title that was used all around the regions. Lots of Antiochs. This is Pisidian Antioch. That's why it has that name there. Right? Now, according to their strategy, which we've looked at before, it was then to find the main city and to enter into the synagogue of that main city. And as was the custom, they would read from the law. They would also read from the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament scriptures. And visiting rabbis were and teachers of the law were welcome to come in and actually to to speak and to give words of encouragement. And so the rulers of the synagogue invite Paul and Barnabas to give a word of encouragement. And what we read next is a sample of the sermon Paul preached before this captive audience. But friends, it's also a sample of the sermon Paul preached before uh, many people in many locations in many cities. In other words, we're not not given all of his sermons as he would go into various synagogues and various cities. So this gives us a picture of how he was going about preaching to the Jews in particular in the synagogue. Now just briefly, look in your Bibles at Acts chapter 17 and verse 2. It says, as Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He went into the synagogue, right? He's reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. That's just kind of like summary form of what we find in this text. And go down to chapter 17 and verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Same thing. Acts chapter 18, verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Chapter 18, verse 19. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Well, what was he doing in the reasoning with the Jews? Well, we have here a sample of what it looks like. He's arguing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Okay? So when Paul went into a synagogue in various cities, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, showing that the Messiah would have to suffer, but also he would rise from the dead. And the emphasis was to call them to respond to call them to repent, to call them to believe, that believing the message of salvation will set you free. So what Paul is arguing for in this sermon is this, and here's the proposition, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment 
of God's redemptive plan to bring salvation to all who believe. The resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan to bring salvation to all who believe. And friends, that is what the gospel writers describe as good news. Now, I want to just really kind of lay out this sermon just in three quick statements here to kind of give you a picture of where we're going. First of all, the logic of the sermon. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to show from both the history of Israel and the explanations of the prophets and the Psalms that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Secondly, I want you to consider the subject of Paul's sermon. His subject, of course, is Christ, that Jesus, the descendant of David, the one whose sandals John the Baptist was unworthy to tie, the one executed by the Jewish leaders through the authority of Pilate, he is the one who fulfills the holy and sure blessings of David. And third, the aim of Paul's sermon isn't just to give a talk. The aim of Paul's sermon is that the people would repent and believe in Jesus and his resurrection in order to be forgiven and be freed from the law of Moses. In other words, their salvation. But before we go on, I want to kind of journey a little bit in this sermon and make three observations that hopefully will set the table a little better for us as we jump in here. First of all, observation number one. Notice how Paul begins his sermon. Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. What is that? It is a rhetorical um, device to get the people's attention. What he has to say is worth listening to. So stop your, your doodling, stop checking your phone, stop your daydreaming, stop thinking about the menu of what you're going to get for lunch. As he's speaking to these people, he wants them to stop. He wants them to listen. He wants them to pay attention. I remember in a previous church, I had a, one of the leaders in the church that got very offended at me because in the middle of a sermon, I said, now listen to this. It's like, why, why should I listen to you? You know, it's like, well, what I had to say wasn't my ideas. What I had to say was the word of God. Some people think about this as something being arrogant. You listen. No, this is important. Paul is saying, this is worth listening to. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. I'm laying the foundation for a very important exposition and explanation of God's word that will have a lasting impact in your life. And he's calling his audience, and ultimately he's calling us to pay attention. Secondly, notice that the sermon has three parts, each beginning with Paul's addressing his audience respectfully. Verse 16, men of Israel and you who fear God. That's the first section. The second section, verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. Then verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. These will mark off our sections as we go through this text together. And then finally here, notice Paul's audience, which really comes from those statements. Paul's audience includes both ethnic Jews and proselyte Jews. Ethnic Jews being those who are truly Jews by descent, Proselyte Jews are Greeks who, or, or Gentiles who have said, ah, we're going we're gonna to jump in and we're going to believe the Jew, Jewish religion. Right? They, they've, they bought into that. Okay? 
So what we need to understand here, though, is this. These are not the same Jewish audience that Peter and Stephen were preaching to. Those were the Jerusalem Jews. When Peter and Stephen preached to the Jews in Jerusalem, their sermons were scathing rebukes to those who rejected Jesus. But these Jews are far removed from Jerusalem. They may not even know what happened in Jerusalem. And Paul's tone in the sermon, although still speaking to the Jews, is far more gracious. Why? Because these were not the same Jews who rejected Jesus, who one week said, Hosanna, 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 and then the next week said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And it's just just a little pause there, friends. Don't measure everyone simply by the leadership. That's just a little side note. And that seems to be practical in, in, in life, too. Not everyone who's following a certain ideology necessarily agrees wholeheartedly with the leadership. They might not even know what, they, what the leadership is saying. And so Paul is treating these people with grace and kindness because what he's about to do is to expose them to the truth of what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's gained their attention And he is now going to identify three things. He's going to make three statements. God has made promises, promises made. God has fulfilled those promises, promises kept. And now you must respond by believing. You must believe. Promises made, promises kept. You must believe. Now, let's walk through this together. Number one, promises made. And what he's doing here in these verses is to lay out the facts from the history, in particular, of Israel. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, you and all who fear God, listen. And what Paul seeks to convey in this first section is the goodness of God at work in maintaining his promise to Israel, which is the means, then, of leading into the present reality where these Jews are, that Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah. So he has a reason for this. And what Paul does first is to walk us through the whole of the Old Testament up to the New Testament era in 151 words. When I was younger, I had those who were leading me in in writing or even in speech, and there was the KISS principle. Probably heard of it before. It has nothing to do with marriage or dating or anything like that, okay? Kiss, is it a cross that it means keep it simple, stupid, right? Now, you shouldn't use the word stupid. So we change it and say keep it simple and short, all right? Apparently, I never learned this, but that's okay. That's a whole other issue. But what we have here is a, a real synthesized understanding of God's work in the Old Testament. I challenge you to summarize the Old Testament in 151 words. Notice, first of all, I'm going to divide this into sections to help us understand what's going on here, but we first of all have a nation is born. And how does he describe the Pentateuch? Well, actually, he shouldn't say the Pentateuch, but that first section. He chose the fathers, nine words. The God of this this people chose, uh, Israel chose our fathers. God could have chosen any other people, but he chose Israel and graciously gave his covenants to them. I mean, just just in those nine words, he just summarizes it all, right? The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. He chose our 
fathers, he's saying. Secondly, God exalted Israel in Egypt. There's 13 words here. And made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. So from the time of Joseph, these people multiplied. And then we have the book of Exodus where he leads them out by an outstretched arm. This is the plagues and, and Moses in his leadership. And then the third thing we see there is that God put up with Israel in the wilderness. Again, 13 words. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. They complained, they rebelled, they complained, they rebelled. Yet God was patient and carried them through. All right, we're done with the Pentateuch. There it is. There's the history of Israel to begin with. Then we jump into the land being conquered. This is Joshua, right? And so we have God destroyed the nations and distributed the land. That's 18 words. And after destroying the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And God promised Israel that his, this land was theirs and they should just go in and take it. And he fought for them and he distributed the land. Again, I want to emphasize, he chose the fathers He's the one who made them great. He's the one that uh, uh, lifted, uh, uh, provided for them with the uplifted arm. He's the one who put up with them in the wilderness. He's the one that destroyed the nations. He's the one who's giving them their land. You get the theme that's happening here. Then we have the kingdom is established. This is Judges through 2 Samuel. All right? God gave them judges. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. It was the goodness of God that gave them judges. Those judges were deliverers for the people of Israel who had wandered away into rebellion and idolatry. And so these these deliverers came back to guide them back to the way of truth. God gave them these judges. God gave them their chosen king. Here we have God now basically allowing Israel to choose the king that they wanted that was just like the nations around them. His name, of course, was Saul. But, of course, he was the wrong king. And so God raised up David. He raised up David. He raised up David. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. So God in his kindness didn't leave Israel to themselves. Even though they had rejected him as king, he graciously raises up David. And he is a king who would do the will of God. He's a king who would lead the people in God's ways. So friends, Paul is is carrying the listeners now through the history uh, uh, to the time of the history of Israel, to the time of David. And he is tracing the good news and the good hand of God's grace uh, to them uh, along every step. And he is leading them to the promise God made to David so that he can lead them to the present and to the most gracious act of all, the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, who is Israel's true savior. So we've seen these three sections. The nation is born, the land is conquered, the kingdom is established. Now the Savior has come. God brought Israel's promised Savior. Of this man's offering, uh, offspring, David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. 
Friends, this is the ultimate focal point of the history of Israel, of all history. This is the main event. God has fulfilled his promise to David. He has sent Israel's Messiah. He has sent Jesus. And then we read about John the Baptist. God prepared for his coming through through John. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people. And of course, John wants to distinguish himself. I'm not the one you're looking for. It is one who is coming, someone I am unworthy to untie the sandals of. Do you see that? God is doing this. God is doing this. Again, just walking back here, God chose the fathers. God made the people great. He, he led them with uplifted arm. He destroyed the nations. He gave them their land. He gave them judges. He gave them their king. He raised up David. He brought to Israel a savior. And he is preparing now for the savior through this man, John the Baptist, the prophet, the last Old Testament prophet. Friends, Paul is saying this to the, his audience. Brothers, These are the facts of God's dealings with Israel according to his promise. You see, the disciples didn't come up with this idea of the resurrection. They didn't come up with this idea of Jesus being the focus of the Old Testament scriptures. He's always been at the heart of the Old Testament. Again, Luke 24 reminds us, Jesus says there, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. You see, Israel needs a savior, just like we need a savior, and God sends Jesus, his son, to be that savior. Friends, this is the message of salvation, not just to Israel, but to all mankind. And it's not some new concept. It's not some contemporary context, uh, concept in, in the context of which Paul is speaking. He's saying, what I'm telling you about, what I'm about to show you is already there in your scripture. Jesus, David's offspring, is Israel's promised Savior. Friends, these are the facts, and facts are stubborn things. Promises made, promises made. Now we move from promises made to promises kept. We move into the next section. Here's the argument. Verse 26, brothers, the sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us, to us has been sent this mess or the message of this salvation, right? So he begins the second section by addressing them as brothers, And he's saying this message of salvation isn't just something to me. This is for us. God has been already laying it out for us so that we would see this gospel. He's been steadily kind of unpacking it along the way. So notice, first of all, the message is rejected by the Jewish leaders. In verse 27, here's what we find. The Jews fail to recognize Jesus. And these are the Jews in Jerusalem. They failed to understand that Jesus was Israel's savior, that he was the fulfillment of God's promises to their fathers. Verse 27, the Jews did not understand the words of the prophets even. Although the, every week they were reading the scriptures. Or, you know, as, they're, as they're interacting with the scriptures, they did not see that Jesus was the one they were waiting for. They didn't understand it. 
Verse 27, at the end, the Jews then condemned Jesus. They convicted Jesus in in the trial before the Sanhedrin and sentenced him to death. According to the Gospels, Jesus was condemned for blasphemy. Again, in verse 27, the Jews' condemnation of Jesus fulfilled the words of the prophets. They did not know that their rejection and execution of Jesus was unwittingly the fulfillment of Scripture, but it was. Number five, the Jews found no basis for Jesus' death sentence. They accused Jesus, but even Pilate three times said to the Jewish leaders, what? I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. And yet, even with that, he goes to a cross, innocent of the crimes that he is being put up for, accused of. And then the sixth thing is the Jews' execution and burial of Jesus through the hand of Pilate was a fulfillment of all that was written about him. Friends, the message is rejected. The message was given. Promises were made in the Old Testament. You should have seen it. You should have seen it. You should have seen it. But the message is rejected. But notice now the message is orchestrated because as we even read through all of that, I'll note, I want you to notice in verse 26, the message was given. Verse 27, the prophets uttered. In verse 29, the scriptures were written. And verse 27, the Jews in Jerusalem fulfilled what was written about Jesus. All of these things were being orchestrated by God. In fact, throughout this text, the word fulfilled and its idea they carried out is used four times. Friends, do you see God was orchestrating his promise throughout the history of Israel. God was fulfilling his promise through the religious leaders in Israel. They ignored him, they rejected him, they condemned him, they executed him, they buried him in a sealed tomb. But still, God is still at work as the divine conductor orchestrating his plan. Promises made, promises kept. Look at verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. You see, the resurrection is accomplished. God raised him from the dead. Just as God had revealed himself during the history of Israel through repeated repeated mighty acts of deliverance from Israel's enemies, So now he sends his deliverer, Jesus, to rescue them from their sins. God had delivered Israel from physical enemies. Now God is delivering Israel and us from the spiritual enemy, and that, of course, is Satan and our sin. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, these things are accomplished. Friends, it is to this, but God raised him from the dead that the history of Israel is pointing to. The resurrection of Jesus from the grave is the climax of the story of redemption. The resurrection is accomplished through Jesus. Secondly, from this verse, verse 30, the resurrection is verified. We're told here what? Verse verse 31, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him. He'd been seen. He had appeared. 
He spent time with these people for many days. It wasn't just kind of like I walk about, oh, I see him. It's like, where's Waldo? Oh, there he is. You know, where? No, the idea is that Jesus walked with them. He, he spent time with them. We have that, of course, recorded for us in the Gospels, too. And then we read 1 Corinthians 15 this morning to begin with, and we read it earlier, but he appeared to so many. So not only was the resurrection accomplished, the resurrection is verified, but the resurrection is also testified. Those who saw him are now witnesses of his resurrection. It's not just saying, well, yeah, I saw him. It's to be a witness is to be one who was, who was on the march to say, did you hear the good news? This one who was promised, see, promises made, is the one who kept his promise. And that promise is now realized in the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm testifying that to you today. And Paul is saying to, to his audience, I am standing here proclaiming this to you as one of those witnesses. So the message is rejected by the Jewish leaders. The message is orchestrated by God. But the message is also fulfilled according to Scripture. And it says in verse 32, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. He's very, very particular. This is for you, the Jews. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to, he's going to reference now as further evidence three passages of Scripture. One, uh, a, a prophet, Isaiah, and two would be two psalms. So we begin with Psalm 2 and verse 7 here. It says here, And also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. What he's, what he's getting at in Psalm 2 is all about who is actually going to rule. Who is that one who is the king who rules? The nations rage, the people gather together, kings uh, uh, join arms and rulers. They all plot together against the Lord and his anointed, which is clearly the Messiah, and the Lord who sits in heaven. What does he do? He laughs. He sees all the orchestration going on, and he laughs, and he promises, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And who is this king? This king is God's son, who is given preeminence. The word begotten doesn't mean he was born first. It means a place of preeminence. He is that first one. He is the ruler. So that the nations, the people, the kings, and the rulers of the world will have to kiss the Son, as a sign and a symbol of their humility that he truly is the ruler of all and recognize his right to rule universally. See, the message is fulfilled in Jesus, and it's right there in Psalm 2 is what Paul is saying. And then he moves to Isaiah 55 and verse 3. And what we have in our text here is, uh, in verse 34 is this, and as for the fact that he, is, that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So the resurrection was the means by which God distributed the blessings that were given to David for the people. So, of course, the question is, what are the holy and sure blessings of David? Well, they are the, the fruit of the covenant 
that God made with David. And we find that in, in um, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 13 and following. Don't, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it here. But just kind of pick up on the things that are being talked about here. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established Forever, So Jesus is resurrected to rescue Israel and to establish a king and a kingdom that would last forever. And you can't do that if your body can experience corruption. So just like David was raised to rule and to establish a kingdom, so Jesus is raised to rule and to establish his kingdom. His universal rule his blessed rescue. Finally here, Psalm 16, verse 10, and we're going to read here verse 35. Therefore, he says, also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, but but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So, unlike David, whose rule ended with his death and whose body saw corruption, Jesus died, but he was raised up and did not see corruption. Therefore, his reign is eternal. Friends, David's earthly reign is a type, an imperfect but forward-looking picture of Jesus' eternal reign. Promises made, promises kept. Now, friends, I don't know about you. If someone's making you a promise, what are you expecting? You're expecting for that promise to be realized. And if that promise isn't realized, you're wondering what's going on. Well, what happens then here is we have this promises made. And what Paul, or Paul is saying here is, look, these promises have not been forgotten about. They have been kept. God has been, has been orchestrating his plan all through this time. And now he is, he is keeping his promise by raising Jesus as this Messiah. Now, friends, this is, this is stuff for most of us who are in church. We know this. We understand this. We get this. This is the heartbeat of who we are as Christians, to understand that God made promises in the Old Testament, and he fulfills them in the New Testament. But as, as Paul is making his argument to Jews who don't know about the New Testament, because it hasn't been written yet, he's arguing from the Old Testament. This is what God, do, God did. This is what he's promised. Now, here's the one who has fulfilled it. God is at work. This is what he's doing. So now, with the facts laid out and the argument made, he brings it all to a conclusion. And he begins talking about the implications now of this message of salvation. You must believe. Point number three. And he begins with an appeal, and he'll finish with a warning. Notice the appeal, first of all, for the people to believe. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, based on what I've just said, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Notice that Paul 
is appealing to all the brothers that through this man, Jesus, comes both forgiveness and freedom. It's not through the apostles, not Peter, Paul, Barnabas, or Stephen. It's not religious leaders, Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha, the Pope, Joseph Smith. It's not political leaders, Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, uh, Vladimir Zelensky. You like them, don't like them. It's none of those guys. It's not respected pastors like John Piper or John MacArthur or Martin Lloyd-Jones or Charles Spurgeon or or R.C. Sproul or, or, or even your elders. It's certainly not me, and it's certainly not you. The the one who brings this salvation, this this, this wonderful good news, comes only through this man. That's what he's saying. This man, Jesus, he is the one. Friends, this is the only man, the one man. It's through this man that forgiveness and freedom can come. Which man? Jesus, the offering offspring of David. Jesus, the promised Messiah. Jesus, Israel's Savior. Jesus, the one who died a sinless death. Jesus, the one who's buried in a sealed and guarded tomb. Jesus, the one who has risen from the tomb after three days. Jesus, the one who ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, the one who commissions his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the one who's instructed the apostles in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It is through this man that forgiveness and freedom comes. But you must believe. I mean, he's going through all this time saying promises made, promises made, promises made, promises are kept, promises are kept, promises are kept. Do you see it? Do you make the connection with me here? And he says, it's one thing to have a head knowledge. It's another thing to bow the knee and to believe that what God had promised thousands of years before, is being realized in this person, Jesus Christ. And even today, that same promise is true for us. God's offer of forgiveness through Jesus means that God declares righteous or justifies everyone who believes. That's the meaning of this word freedom. There's this this issue here with the law saying you're freedom because you, you can't live up to the law of Moses. None of us can live up to the law. But it's in Christ we are forgiven and we are declared justified. We're declared righteous. And that's not for a season. (laughs) That is a point in time that has everlasting results. This is what Jesus has done in dying on the cross for our sins. He's made it possible now that we can bow our knee before him and believe in him, but not just believe that it happened, but actually put our trust in him, put our faith in him, that he can pay for our sins. And the resurrection is, might want to say, the, 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 the gavel that comes down and says, look, this is real, this is true. How do I know it's true? Because Jesus has risen from the grave. We're guilty, we're all guilty. 
But God declares that we are forgiven if we believe that Jesus Christ is Israel's Messiah. He is our Messiah. My friends, the person who believes is putting their faith fully and completely on what Jesus did on the cross. So there's a, there's first of all, an appeal for people to believe. Secondly, there's, there's a warning for people to beware. Notice what it says in verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Now, if you know anything about the prophets, oh, there's some really good stuff in there, but there's a lot of stuff you want to stay away from. There's a lot of stuff you don't want to be the recipient of, right? And here is one of those things. He says, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you, uh, tells it to you. In other words, he's saying, you won't even see what I'm doing. You don't even understand what I'm doing, but I'm doing it. And you may scoff at it. Beware. Now, friends, here's the reality. Some might still be saying, some who are gathered here today might still be saying, I'm not going to believe in this fairy tale stuff. You can if you want to, but I'm not as gullible as these simple people in the first century, in particular in Pisidia and Antioch. We here in 2022, we've moved beyond that kind of nonsense. But friends, let me remind you that there have been scoffers and opponents of Jesus and his resurrection and the apostles ever since the time of the Gospels. This is not new. They scoff at the evidence. They feel smarter and more sophisticated. They're unwilling to to honestly look at the facts recorded in Scripture. They look down their nose at people whose lives have been changed by the gospel. And my wife asked me a question on the way to church this morning. She says, you know, what does the resurrection mean to you? It's a really good question. It seems like a real simple question, like a Sunday school question. But as I thought about it, it's like, you know what? I was not chasing after God. I was a young man who grew up in a Christian home but was rebellious. I did not want anything to do with the church. I avoided it like the plague. And yet God was doing things in my life, just like drawing me, capturing me, kind of making me think and making me doubt and making me ask questions. And as a result, what what Christ did in me is he changed me completely from what I was into what I was becoming because of the gospel. And friends, people can scoff all they want But that scoffing is not new. It was around in Jesus' day. It was around in the prophet Habakkuk's day. And it's still around today. Paul's reminding his audience of the grave consequences of refusing God's gracious offer. If they do not come to faith in Jesus and accept God's offer of forgiveness, that which was spoken by the prophets will happen to them, namely God's judgment. Now, you're like, where did Habakkuk come from, you're saying? How did he bring that up? Because it's Habakkuk that is being quoted here. You see, in Habakkuk's day, he was prophesying a warning to the Jewish people that God will perform a work which they will find hard to believe. And God was saying, I am going to be sending Babylon and they are going to come and they are going to destroy you as a means of judgment against you. And Israel's like, 
No, he's not going to do that. No way. Yes way. And he did. This is real stuff. And the audience there, knowing what this prophecy is about, they understand the warning. They understand what he's saying. Beware. Don't be astounded and perish. Be astounded and believe. A warning. An appeal. How do the people respond to Paul's sermon? Look at verse 42 and 43. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. You know, I, I, interesting, I was reading some commentaries just about these two verses, and there was a good number of them that said, see, they're, they're not believers. They're just like kicking the can down the road. And I'm thinking, wait a second here. That's not what's happening here. They're not kicking the can down the road. What do we find here? They're begging to hear more. <laughs> In other words, come back next week. We want to hear more. And when they were done, they followed them. I know what it's like as a pastor. I typically am out there after, after church, and sometimes there are people that want to talk to me, and I might kind of walk back in, and they're, they're following around and I, because they want to talk. They want to hear. They have a question. They want answered. This is what's going on here. So the idea of them following was they were following them back to where they were staying, and they urged them to continue their instruction there. Friends, these descriptions are a wonderful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his resurrection at work in the hearts of people. They're hungry for more. They're eager to understand things better. They're struggling with what they have known, uh, being challenged by the facts or the evidence that Paul has presented and the arguments that he's made. Friends, sometimes the grace of salvation is immediate. The gospel is presented and someone's like, yes, I must believe. I do believe. But sometimes the grace of salvation marinates. And I know some of you, some of you had immediate responses to the gospel. I know some of you, it's been a journey. And it marinates you. You're hearing bits and pieces. The light is dim at first, but it's growing brighter and brighter. And it needs time and more fuel to increase the flame until it finally is burning hot in the heart of the individual and they're saved. How did you come to know Christ as your Savior? Were you like the Apostle Paul who was literally hit on the head while he was on a journey? Is that what happened to you? Or were you more like Nicodemus who had many questions but finally believed. Friends, when the gospel is believed and forgiveness and justification are realized, you will be hungry for more. Not entertainment, not emotionalism, not signs and wonders, not social programs. You'll be hungry for more of God's truth. Not just to get head knowledge, but you're like, I have a master now. I have a guide, and he speaks to life. I want to find out what he has to say. And you want more teaching, more explanation, more illustration, more application of God's truth. You will want to hear more about this message of salvation. This is the fruit of this sermon. 
And friends, in conclusion, I have three questions for you. Number one, are you listening? Are you listening? There's a lot of noise in this world that can distract us from paying attention to what is important. We're so easily distracted by social media entertainment, social and cultural concerns, which are important, personal hobbies, which we need, and just the everyday struggles of life. But friends, are you listening to what is important here today? Not listening to me, but listening to the evidence of Scripture, the truth and and the promises that have been kept, and, and the call to believe. I want to plead with you to listen to what the Apostle Paul is saying to you today. Will you look at that overwhelming evidence? Will you examine how the evidence points to Jesus? Will you believe in Jesus and his resurrection and be forgiven and declared by God to be in right standing with him? Which is a wonderful thing, by the way. Will you listen? Are you listening? Secondly, are you marinating? Marinating is good. Soaking up all you can, trying to understand what the scriptures are talking about. As I mentioned, I grew up in a Christian home, but I didn't become a believer right away. I rebelled in those early years, but in my heart I had questions. I had doubts, and yet it was clear to me that something was taking place in my life. I was more willing to consider spiritual conversations. I was more eager to ask questions and be instructed. Friends, as you place yourself in the truth of God's word, you will, you will marinate in it. But here's the warning, friends. Marinating the gospel offer is good, but don't marinate too long. You can come over to my house today for an Easter meal. I've had chicken marinating in my refrigerator for about a month, and it should be good. You get the point. God is patient. He is patient. But don't marinate too long. Allow the marinating to be a means to get to the truth. There is an urgency, friends. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you bow your knee before the creator of the universe. And you call him daddy. (laughs) He rose. And through that resurrection has given you the freedom and the joy to be reconciled to him. Are you marinating? Are you listening? Third, are you ready? Maybe you just happened to be here this morning and it's the first time the gospel has been explained to you from the word. Maybe you've been listening week after week. You've been coming maybe because you have a boyfriend or girlfriend that attends the church and you're coming along with them. Or maybe you're coming to please your mother or your father or a friend. You're here and you're respectful. And in your heart you have questions. Friends, are you ready to receive Christ today? Are you ready to have your life radically changed by the gospel? Are you ready to respond to Jesus by faith in his sacrifice for your sins on the cross? If you are, I invite you 
to come up afterwards and talk with me or one of the elders after the service. We want to help you know Christ. We are unashamedly about the gospel of Jesus Christ at this church. Hopefully you being here today, you've realized we're not trying to slip it in. It's there, and we want you to feast on it. Are you ready to face God in the judgment? See, Scripture says only the righteous, those who have been forgiven and justified, will be able to stand before God with confidence. It's because they're not standing in their own strength. They're standing because Jesus Christ is standing there with them. He's the one that gives them access. He's the one that allows them to come before the Father. The scripture says those who have not believed will not be able to stand before God. Why? Because they are already condemned. Friends, listen, marinate, but I beg of you, will you believe? Lord, this is a weighty message. I understand that. And I'm sure it was a weighty message for these Jews to hear of how the very scriptures that they hold to declare so forcefully God's provision and promise of his Messiah through the promises that were made in the Old Testament that are realized now in this context where Paul is speaking to them, where Jesus Christ has come and he's ministered on this earth and he's died, he suffered, he was buried, he rose again and he's ascended into heaven and he's orchestrating even the ministry of the gospel, the ongoing ministry of the gospel from that place in heaven. It's just an amazing thought, Lord. And here we are years later with the same truths, the same gospel, the same evidence, the same fruit. And Lord, if there's someone here today who is wrestling right now, maybe they've been marinating in the gospel. Maybe this is the first time, but Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, bring them to faith? Lord, would you build your church Would you accomplish your purposes in them? And Lord, for those of us who are Christians, Lord, may we be encouraged. May we be strengthened. May we be emboldened that because you have risen, we can have life and we can proclaim that life. Trust, Lord, that you're going to work through it. You're a good God. And we simply want to be your servants. Lord, help us to be that for your glory. We ask in your name. Amen.